This is a Federal News Network podcast. Over the last five years, agencies have increased their spending on cloud services through the General Services Administration by 60%. In 2016, agencies spent about $1 billion through the assorted GSA contract offerings. By 2021, that number grew to $1.6 billion. For what's behind the growth, and generally in cloud government-wide, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with the GSA's Deputy Assistant Commissioner for Category Management in the Federal Acquisition Service, Alan Hill. A lot of the drivers had to do with the enterprise-type services that the cloud offers. For example, email as a service, collaboration tools as a service. Those were the real drivers. Why? Because we went into a remote environment. That demand of being able to have individual staff work at their homes and where they were at was so important. So that change in direction for the agencies rapidly scaling up to what was necessary was very important. So being able to buy those services, and now they're looking at their business applications now. Okay, you already moved the, moved the enterprise services there. What are some of the business applications? And that's really now where the agencies are focused on. In many ways, the pandemic was that, I'll use the term magic bullet, unfortunately, that we maybe a lot of agencies were looking for because this move to the cloud has not been something that's been new. As you said, they've been spending upwards of a billion dollars a year, but that the Delta, almost 60% increase in, in the amount of spend, got them to the point now where they're, okay, we got the, here we go, low-hanging fruit done, and now we're moving into the medium-hanging fruit. Is that is that an accurate way to describe it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's also other aspects of the cloud and where the traditional way of the network, the way it was uh, designed, was everything was in the data center. And so everything being in the data center, but to be able to uh, move things into the cloud and move things to the endpoints from a security perspective, you're much more able to do that out of the cloud than you are in a traditional data center. The data center piece, I know that GSA held a a very interesting data center sustainability, consolidation, optimization event a couple months ago. What are you seeing when you talk about when cloud buying and the way agencies are looking at their cloud services different today than they did a year ago, two years ago, five years ago? What's the big difference you're seeing? One of it has to do with the scalability. From an example... The traditional way of why we, way we did email and stuff, you had to buy compute and put servers in. You're able to do that uh, virtually now and be able to scale up in th- those type of resources that you need, instantaneous uh, access to those things. Uh, there's also aspect of how uh, security becomes. It is no longer a bolt-on aspect. It has to be integrated into the type of solution. So that's very important. So with cloud offerings, and you get the security built into it. Vice having traditional premise-type security that you wait until it gets to the entry-exit point to look at it. Interesting that the amount of cloud being bought during the pandemic went up. Not surprising. Now that you can look back on 2021 and, and how things are going so far in 2022, is the trend still up or is it kind of leveled off? What are you starting to see from a GSA perspective? It slowed down, and, and that's really because of the scalability of, of the business applications and, and taking that very detailed look of what needs to occur for that transition to occur. A couple of agencies and stuff, they're early in the adoption of moving to the cloud. They're being very deliberate in what they're doing to move to the cloud because they can't break the mission, and that's most important. So they have to look at it, so you have to take a very slow approach, making sure that you have all the... Do you have the right infrastructure in place? Do you have the right, even from a staffing perspective, the skills and stuff to be able to move? A lot of agencies are, are handcuffed because they don't necessarily have the skills there to move that. Right. The other piece of this is from GSA's perspective, as you talk about buying cloud, 
are you seeing the same kind of trends? Have you seen, like, for instance, Alliant 2 is a big popular for buying cloud schedules or popular for buying cloud services. Is that trend still holding up? And, of course, our favorite topic, the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract, EIS, is another popular way. Is that, is that all holding, or, or are agencies looking for new ways or new approaches or anything change? From Alliant 2, it is very popular. A lot of agencies move to it to use it to buy what they need because they need to manage services on top of that. Uh, but there's also the schedules on where they put BPAs in place because of that high volume of buy and, and what makes sense. So it kind of depends where they are. Are they focused on quick buy type technologies? Are they looking for the technologies and services which would be delivered through the Alliant 2? EIS, it's a combination of both. You can buy the technology or you can buy the managed services on top of that. You brought this up a couple of times, managed services. You also brought up this idea of as a service. So let's jump over there because that's a trend that maybe is coming in the future, maybe a year or two or three. You mentioned a really interesting Gartner report. Let me start there. Let me ask you to talk about what Gartner found. Gartner released the report that they anticipate government moving to 95% of the spend will be focused on as a service. And that's important because the way technology is moving today is even more uh, faster than the days when I was a, a, a engineer. That ability to not, it's not just the skills that has to do that, but the ability to modernize. How technology today is, is being modernized in a cloud platform is seamless to the user. And that's very important. Where in, in, in the traditional way, you buy the technology and then you go out there and buy labor services and, and, and integrate it. That is taking too long to continue to keep that. And agencies are challenged with lifecycle management because of that. So moving to an as-a-service model, there's a benefit of that because you get the, not only the technology but the managed services for those skills that you may not have within your staff. You can then use that to bring it, beef up so that you're not sitting there waiting to, uh, you know, to hire uh, GS people to do those type of services. And how does GSA adjust what you offer and how you support agencies when this as-a-service approach begins to get more popular? It may not be there yet, but you, you, ha- you have to look out three, five, seven years down the road. We know that. So we're looking at from where the agencies are in the full spectrum. There are those agencies that might be very mature. They have the staff on hand. They can do that. So we want to make sure that, that to be able to buy directly to technologies and not necessarily need those managed services. There's those te- uh, agencies that need all those services because they're, they're small in nature. They don't have the necessary skills on, uh, on staff. You know, Agency 500 uh, def- is not going to have a large IT staff, so they're going to re- be reliant more on those managed services in order to deliver the, the mission capabilities they need for their agency. That tags also back to something you mentioned about skill sets within the internal agencies. They may not have the skill sets or workforce trained. That's the other thing that cloud is forcing agencies to kind of rethink is, okay, what skill sets do I need today? What do I need in the future to manage cloud, manage cloud services? Is that something that GSA is also starting to look at? And and how are you, again, being prepared for today and tomorrow? Even within my own staff, there's a combination of using government staff and contract staff. Because there, there are certain things in terms of skill sets that I might not be able to hire as a government s- staff person. So I may rely on a vendor to bring in those kind of skill sets. Quantum computing in itself, right? I don't have anybody on staff that's a quantum computing expert type thing. So I, I'm going to look at a vendor to bring those kind of skill sets in to help bring that level of knowledge in so that we're going to be quicker. There's also the aspect of th- the way technology is evolving. Traditionally, like networking, it has been traditional IP routing. We've now moved to software-defined networking. You're talking about two different distinct skill sets. You have a software developer along with a network router person. Bringing those together creates a level of complexity. On top of that, 
you're building in additional things of security on top of that. So you have you, you bring three skills together to deliver a software-defined network, you know, software-defined perimeter. That becomes more complex. Now, to hire that kind of person is almost double the salaries of what the, the software person might make. Alan Hill is Deputy Assistant Commissioner for Category Management in the Federal Acquisition Service at the GSA. Speaking there with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most 
leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. 
You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.